This episode is sponsored by The Principal Center. The Principal Center is a provider of professional development for high-performance instructional leadership. Go to the website principalcenter.com. On this website, you can find a lot of resources and services on leadership. And now, let's go to today's podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I am Johannes Miesker. I am an assistant professor at the University of the Faroe Islands and my research area is pedagogical leadership. Welcome to this podcast once again and yes, in this podcast we will hear an interview that I have conducted with Frenchie and Kensington. So I'm here at the University of Greenwich and I'm sitting here with Francia Kinchington and she's a principal lecturer here at the university. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can first start off by telling us about your professional background. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, I've, um, within the course of my career, I... Um, have taught. I started off as a teacher. I went, um, uh, worked for a local authority. I worked for research and statistics and um, worked for the university. So I've been at the university for over 20 years and within that period I've taught undergraduate teacher training but I ran our master's uh, program. Um, within the uh, Faculty of Education as it was then um, and uh, our doctoral program for five or six years Hmm. and more recently my role has changed so I have uh, a much more European um, Hmm. responsibility but I'm also uh, a doctoral mentor for students and staff Hmm. and I've got 16 completions and I've got another half a dozen to finish um, off. Oh, okay. So what is currently your main research interest? I'm particularly interested in, um, well, there, there are several things that I'm interested in, but in terms of leadership, um, I'm interested in the way that um, uh, school leaders um, and bear in mind that in the UK we call them head teachers, in Europe school leaders, and um, where I worked with uh, people from the States, they're called principals. Mm. Mm. Um, the way that they develop from novice to expert practitioner during the course of their career. I'm particularly interested in the way that we train them and the way that we look after them. Mm because a head teacher has an enormous responsibility for the children and for the staff and for the well-being of that total group. And if we're saying that children are our most valuable asset, um, you know, they are our future, the head teacher holds something really quite fragile in their hands. 
So what can we do as higher education institutions and as trainers do to develop them? Because it's about, not only uh, about developing them at one point in time, but they need development over the, the whole course of their career. And I've certainly had head teachers within our doctoral program uh, and inspectors who have reached, in some people's eyes, um, you know, a pinnacle of their achievement, but that isn't enough for them, and they do want to continue and to develop. Hmm. And so things like a, a doctorate become quite important for them to publish. Hmm. So you've got people who are able... You know, who are grounded both in the the practice and the theory, yeah. and they've lived it, and mm. so they're able to um, present an understanding from a position of you know the lived experience. So I'm particularly interested um, in their decision making. I've got a, a background in psychology, but also I was involved in the um, during the 90s in um, a, a government initiative, which was the National Professional Qualification for Head Teachers, and the idea there was that anybody who became a head teacher for the first time should actually have this qualification. That's changed now, hmm. um, and it's no longer the case, but it really was quite an important thing. It was, I think, a recognition that you couldn't just be an experienced educationalist or an experienced deputy head and automatically assume the... the the, the mantle of the school leader hmm. because as a deputy head and I've spoken to so many of them um, what's clear is that you are not the person that is ultimately responsible but that head teacher is hmm. and certainly when I interviewed them in the beginning um, what was apparent was that you know the buck stops there there isn't anybody else. You need to, of course, develop a network of people around you who can give you a peer support network, who can give you that informed uh, advice. Um, but, you know, it is a lonely place. Hmm. And um, when I was doing the MPQH, part of which... Um, you know, in my role, they, they separated out our roles, so we had trainers, but I was involved in the assessment, the oh. final assessment day. Okay. So they had um, uh, a whole range of activities, in-tray exercises, we had to do observations, uh, on the you know, group discussions, but one of the things that I found particularly interesting was the interviews that I had with the, uh, they were either deputy heads or head teachers um, who came forward, um, and it was about the critical incidents, huh. and it was in the patterns of the critical incidents that you know, I found a lot of interest because there seemed to be differences between what men brought and what women brought, primary compared to secondary um, education, and that's one of the papers that I've written about huh. because clearly what, what, what seemed to be the case was that um, the women had this package of uh, skills with D that were 
uh, uh, vital in dealing with aggressive situations, confrontation. They had this um, what might be you know described as the soft skills their interpersonal skills were really really good mm. they could read people you know somebody you know something's not quite right and they could separate them off so the incidents that they brought um, to the table were not around that they were about other things mm. and and uh, as compared to men who found you know those kind of confrontational uh, difficulties more uh, challenging hmm. but um, it also um, made me think about um, about their decision making so the themes for me have been about um, how do we train them and not just you know once but all the way through their career hmm, okay um, how do they make their decisions? What does that, you know? What informs that? Um, how do we look after them? Because if their role, and a lot of them have described themselves as, you know, I've got to mind the school. But my point is, who minds the minder? Hmm. You know, is there somebody there who helps? Because these are human beings who have a life, yeah. and. You know, we need to look after them because the whole school is dependent. You know, the whole school community is dependent on them. Hmm. I did a training session once, and um, I think they, it was interesting. They're all very, very experienced head teachers, and um, it was a majority women. And um, you know, I was talking to them about you know how they manage this work-life balance. And then I said to them, and uh, so when do you have sex? And they said, in the holidays. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, what have we done? You know, you cannot have people that you're so dependent on in a system that eats them up mm. and then when they're burnt out, just spits them out and doesn't look after them. You know, what does that say about us? So... Evolving over time, one of the, the, the strands that I picked up in relation to their decision-making was um, a, a notion of Aristotle's to do with um, wise decision-making oh. that I call phronesis, okay, yeah. in Greek, phronesis. And um, it was... Uh, what when they took decisions and important decisions, and you know what informs that, mm. and um, a piece of work that I'm working on at the moment, which um, I um, early on in. Um, uh, last year, I went to the States and I was talking with colleagues in Colombia and I spoke to them about it. And um, so I'm in the process of writing this uh, up yeah. at the moment. And um, the, the decisions that head teachers, school leaders took, um, you know, they could range from you know, 20 to 100. I had somebody who was involved in amalgamating two schools, two primary schools, and so the decisions that, you know, he was into a very heavy, you know, uh, decision intensive period. 
that, you know, on average, 40 to 50, and these are quite important, serious decisions. This mm. isn't, you know, do you want sugar in your tea? Uh, decisions, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? <laughs> and um, the, um, uh, so the, the, um, the sample was a purposive sample, and I quite like that. I like to be able to choose, you know, uh, uh, pe- uh, head teachers in the early part of their um, career to medium and very, very experienced people. Mm. And because obviously I've got lots of contacts, I can do this quite uh, yeah. easily. Yeah. And um, so with this particular piece of work, I've got, I think I've had about 14 back, but it's evolving, I'm still collecting. Um, And the analysis, I just did a a thematic analysis, and I've come up with five (coughs) themes. Themes, okay. Yeah, Um, I've got a theme which is about the confidence, their confidence in what constitutes a wise decision. Okay. They were absolutely clear. This was and this wasn't. Hmm. There was no ambiguity and they were very, very centered on that. The second theme was um, that they acknowledged the impact of poor decision-making because of the repercussions. Hmm. And there were some things, excuse me, there were some things which um, you couldn't put on the back burner. If a child was at risk, they all said that. That had to be dealt with straight away. Mm. Um, and, you know, in terms of poor decision making, they were very, very um, articulate about what could happen, how things can unravel how something can start off in one place and end up and have a whole school effect. Hmm. So they were very, very clear about that. And of course that gave them sleepless nights as well. And they articulated a values-driven leadership. They were clear about this is what the school's vision is about, this is the philosophy of the school, the ethos of the school, the values of the school. And they said that when they took decisions, they wanted to be able to relate their decisions back to what was claimed within the school. Mm. And if anybody asked them or interrogated their decision, they could actually say, this is where it lives. So they were absolutely clear about their values, that they shared the values of what was um, uh, espoused for the school. Mm. There wasn't a separation. I asked them about the time factor. Was time of essence? And, of course, you know, when you have a critical incident, a decision's got to be made. And it's got to be made, it may just be three minutes. Hmm. And even if you're saying, okay, um, I need to come back to you this afternoon, I need more time. But a decision has got to be made. But, of course, when you're looking at a very complex thing, that decision, it may, there were times when uh, they had to uh, take advice from other people. You know, people said that it doesn't matter how experienced you are as a head teacher, you've always got to be 
willing and open to taking advice. That mm. was, you know, you can't handle it all on your own. And um, I asked them about whether intuition played a role. So these um, things came out of the, um, the things that they said. Mm. And so yeah. it was, you know, I, I was able to analyze it. But intuition was, uh, was it intuition versus experience? And they did talk about both, both having a role. Because if it was just experience and you didn't have intuition, and by intuition they talked about being very, very people-centered and locked into people and understanding the context and the situation. And the situation within a particular time frame. And, you know, being able to see this kind of whole picture so that people were able, you know, these uh, head teachers were able to read a situation. They became very experienced at mm, that. Yeah. Um, being, a, being so uh, familiar with members of staff and the children within the culture of the school that you could see where something was not working well or something was out of order or something wasn't correct mm. um, and so that intuition coupled with the experience was invaluable and the the final thing within the analysis was that I was able to uh, uh, show that in terms of developing from novice to expert practitioner and you know these individuals were able to act in this very, very independent way. They had a whole range of experiences at um, their fingertips, and they were able to draw on a whole range of case studies. And it's, it's very much like, you know, as a, a consultant in a hospital, the very, very experienced ones, you may present with a set of symptoms, but you know they were, they're able to go through this flow chart in their head and say it could be this mm. in light of what you've just told me. Yeah. And for somebody who was less experienced, they wouldn't have been able to pick up on this uh, kind of wholeness or the complexity of the situation. So you need that kind of um, uh, understanding, and it was important for them, you know, when I spoke to them, you know, and, and shared the findings, for them, they valued the ability to reflect on the things that they had said, because maybe there hadn't been enough time for them to think through, but for me to be able to say, look, this is what's coming up. Um, you know, out of the analysis, and they were able to discuss this. So, you know, it contributed to their kind of reflexivity, and you know, in terms of deepening their understanding. <clears throat> because one of the things that is apparent in you know any school is this thing of change. Hmm. And it isn't just managing the change, it's understanding the change. Oh, okay. Because you have 
and, and again, because I'm seeing it from a psychological perspective, when change doesn't happen, because you can have somebody who's totally passionate and you know believes this is the right way forward, they've consulted with everybody, and it still doesn't happen. So why doesn't it happen? Mm. And there are, for me, there are these two strands. There's the institutional strand, and then there's the people strand. Oh, okay. And also, it's the time frame, because it could be the right thing, it's just the wrong time frame. Oh, okay. And the the the, uh, the leader hasn't had the uh, was unable to make the judgment call to say we need to do it, but we have to just. You know, there are several other steps before, or I've got to do this, I've got to consult with that, I've got to bide my time. Um, because you could have a situation, and you know, I've worked in many institutions, and you know, higher education is no different, where people come in, they make changes. The changes look good on the surface, but are they embedded? Mm. And you may have people who uh, are given new responsibility, you've got new policy documents, it looks like change is about to take off. Yeah. And then people, you know, it may be that there are, it looks like change is happening um, in the first few months, and then people go back to the same old, same old, you know, the mindset there has been no paradigm mm. shift. Ah, exactly. And they just go back to the way that they know, yeah. the way that they behave, the way that they interact. Mm. Um, you can have, you know, situations where the, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the institution, nobody in that institution, Nobody in that institution over the past N years, over the past three or four head teachers, has been able to bring about change because of things that are embedded within the institution. Mm. And one of the things that I did was to develop um, the iceberg model. Oh, okay. So every time I've ever done any training with uh, you know, leaders, school leaders, head deputy heads, and so on. I've given them the iceberg, and I've got a copy here. Mm. So there's the original one, and then I just get them to put things in. Oh, okay. And when you put the things in, you suddenly see what's beneath the surface. Yeah. So I'm really quite intrigued um, uh, with that. So if you see, this is the original oh, yeah. one, yeah. You know, the organizational iceberg yeah. um, from 98, and then, hmm. because this thing about this hidden organization, it can be incredibly powerful in blocking change yeah. happen, because if you've got cliques, if you've got a silent majority who just keep their heads down and their mouths zipped. Um, and if you've got groups that don't communicate with one another, 
um, you know, if you've got success and rewards for the people that are in the know or whose faces fit, it sets up a dynamic where you've got people who are in and people who are out. Of course, a, a school needs everybody to teach. You know, a school is only as good as its teachers. Yeah. It's the head teacher's responsibility to cultivate, to grow these people. You know, the more valued they feel, the more they're going to be able to engage with children who come from all sorts of backgrounds. You know, you've only got to see what's happening in the world today. And certainly for a place like London, the whole world ends up in your classroom hmm. with all sorts of backgrounds. Yeah. You know, you need teachers who are pedagogues, who are educators, sometimes they're social workers. You know, that's the, the environment that, mm. you know, we, we work in, um, in schools. But if you've got bullying taking place within the staff, if you've got cliques who are more favoured than others, you know, if you've got, um, there is no sense of well-being amongst the staff, where staff don't feel valued, hmm. then you're not going to get people who feel in reality empowered to be able to do the best for their children. Yeah. So it's quite a complex yeah, yeah, yeah. you know situation. The dynamics of a school are very, very interesting. Mm. You know, there you know, there is what is on the surface and then what's underneath. Yeah. And the more you engage with schools, the more you can see how you know, what lies underneath and why something isn't going to work. Yeah, yeah. And the head teachers involved in something else, or they're they're so busy, or you know they may have all sorts of layers, mm. and it's what's fed up to them. Yeah. But you've still got to walk yeah, the yeah. walk. Yeah. I um, I said earlier that I went to uh, Colombia and I was um, introduced to a head teacher, a very very experienced head teacher, who was totally passionate, um, charismatic. You know, my marker of a good school is, if I was a child, would I want to be a child in that school? And the answer was definitely yes. Hmm. You know, she uh, walked around the school with her. All the children came up to her. They were talking about secondary school, um, you know, with 17-year-olds in. Totally respectful of her. She was a tiny lady, but fizzing with passion and energy and... And creativity mm. uh, and the school was a new build school she'd been a head teacher of the school for I don't know 10 years but she was able to create this new school it was a converted factory in Hell's Kitchen in New York in, the, in that area the children had been consulted the, um, the staff had been you know, it was a place that really worked for that mm. school community. And that's really exciting to see. You yeah. know, it, it's important for us to go in and out of schools, to see schools in different countries. And I've been to schools in, in Sweden, um, in the Netherlands. Uh, we ran a master's degree in leadership in Stockholm. You know, we had that opportunity um, uh, some years back. I don't know, it must have been about eight or nine years, I did some work for the British Council 
and um, I was in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia for 10 days working with um, head teachers and inspectors um, and I was talking to them about leadership in different schools in Europe and um, of course I just looked after the women and there was a head teacher who looked after the men but it was a real um, you know after the first day when we relaxed into getting to know one another they were incredibly open and what a head teacher wants you know in one country is the same as what one you know what mm. they want in another country yeah, yes matters yes yeah and you know and i said to them what kind of a child do you want to turn out at the end of their having been you know 8 9 years in your school and they were absolutely clear I want this, this, this and this hmm. um, they weren't talking about passive girls they were talking about you know, girls who were able to manage their lives and you know, have an education and I also um, did training of head teachers um, in Abu Dhabi and Oman hmm. and um, that, that's important so that you, you know, that we aren't just, you know, uh, seeing the situation from our national perspective, to go out into Europe, to go out further afield, to see what's happening in the Middle East, to see what's happening in the States, because you suddenly realize the characteristics of a good head teacher or a school leader are the same mm. everywhere. Yeah. You know, the decision-making skills, their ability to deconstruct complex situations and come up with, you know, plan A, B and C or solutions, the way that they're able to create an amazing staff body around them. Mm. So you've got this community, you know, it's that legacy, they model behaviors that are then filtered down to the children. Yeah. And um, it, you know, it makes the children, you know, the individuals that they are. Mm, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It has been very interesting to hear you talk, Francia. Uh, and at the end, I would like to ask you, given all your research you have carried out and the theoretical knowledge you have, which top advices would you give to head teachers? Um, it's not so much for the head teachers, it's about what the rest of us can oh, do to okay. support them. Yeah. Um, we need to train them so that they can hit the ground running hmm. at the very beginning. We need to be there to help them evolve over time. We need to give them the credit that um, they are worthy of because of the responsibility. I mean, I know, and I've I've worked with head teachers who are, you know, are paid enormous amounts of money. But that isn't that isn't the whole story. You know, it's about the status and the recognition and the respect. Um, and we need to help them to to continue their development, doctoral training to do a PhD, a professional doctorate, these things are quite important mm. because you still have to stretch them. They need to be stretched. 
because there comes a time, and I've spoken to lots of head teachers, where they are, um, they can do the job. Hmm. They can do the job. So in order to develop themselves, do they, does that mean that they've got to go and find a different school? I had um, uh, a head teacher that I worked with. I looked after him through his master's program and then supervised him in his doctoral program. And he was particularly intrigued with this, rap uh, this notion of rapid school improvement because this is what he'd done. Hmm. He had taken on over, you know, he was a, you know, a young man, only at the time, uh, I think he was about 45 when he completed his doctorate. But um, he had taken on three schools where he turned them around. Hmm. And he really did like that. He was excited about creating order out of disorder. Yeah. That was his oh, mindset. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And um, my, um, um, you know, the advantage also, especially for me, was that he was a mathematician. Mm. So he was able to analyze the data statistically of what happened within the school. How he was able to turn a school round and you know, what were the essential um, dimensions mm. that needed to be in place. Um, so, you know, that was quite, not only it stretched him, it was intriguing for him. Um, and, you know, he's gone on to do consultancy and all sorts of things. So you have to think about somebody, a school leader's career mm. at the time. Yeah. Um, and I think there are lots of us around that can help them to do that or help to facilitate that. Hmm. Because, you know, the thing that I would say for most teachers that I've ever spoken to um, is they're very, they're engaged in learning. They're very curious people. They want to investigate things. And the minute you stop doing that and you just go, you know, onto some kind of um, uh, mind-numbing, just repetitive, I don't know, existence, then you've lost the spark of what it yeah. is that makes you an educator. Because mm. if you're not passionate about education, how on earth are you going to transmit yeah. that you know, to the students yeah, exactly, that you yeah. work with? Yeah. Um, so I think really it's, it's about that we should respect them, that we should give them the, um, um, any, the support that they need to continue their mm, development. Exactly. And then at the very end, if people want to find more information about you and your research, is there a place on the internet where they can? Um, yes, I. Um, yeah, they they can either check through the university, or um, I'm just in the process of um, updating my website. Okay. So it'll be Francia Kinchington, something or the other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Francia. My pleasure. Really, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I hope you have enjoyed the interview and that you have gained some new insights into leadership. I hope that you will listen to the other podcasts in this series. A new podcast is being published on the first of every month.
You are also welcome to join us on Facebook. There is a group called Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. If you just type in the name of the podcast in the search field in Facebook, you will find the group. Once again, thanks for listening and bye-bye.